could I ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 is the portion of God's Word that we're going to be coming to this morning in our series in, in Revelation. Um, and we're going to read that whole chapter together. A wonderful portion of God's Word this morning. And uh, let's read it together and follow along in your own Bibles. It's on the screen, but I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, and um, be able to look at all the cross-references and other portions that we'll make reference to this morning. So let's read together Revelation chapter 12 from verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems or crowns. He, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death." Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the, that the dragon had poured from his mouth." Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. 
Well, this is God's word, and Grant has already prayed that the Lord would be pleased to to help us and to bless us as we uh, consider his word this morning. Um, Despite uh, all the challenges uh, of working through the book of Revelation together over the last couple of months, uh, I've been looking forward to Revelation chapter 12 since the very beginning of the series because The portion of scripture that we've just read together is one which helps us to understand the history of the world like perhaps no other portion of scripture in all of the Bible. In these 17 verses, John will be summarizing for us the entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, both from the perspective of the events that unfold on the earth Uh, through the pages of history, uh, as well as from the perspective of the the spiritual realities which exist behind world history, specifically to show us the battle which rages between Jesus uh, and Satan and the battle which rages between the church of Jesus and the powers of darkness. And so if you take a look at uh, your Revelation diagram, which I handed out to you at the beginning, uh, and there are some copies at the back, uh, you will see that today we, we, we start a new section in chapter 12. Um, we're starting vision number four. Um, so we're starting the fourth vision here. But what you will also see on your diagram is that we are starting a whole new section, um, the second half of the book of Revelation. Chapters 12 to 22 uh, mark the beginning uh, of the next major division in the book of Revelation. And you'll see on the left-hand side of your diagram that the first half of the book, Revelation 1 to 11, uh, focused mainly on the struggle of Christians here on the earth. Uh, For example, the first vision, the the vision of the seven letters to the seven churches dealt with the congregations, uh, the seven congregations and how they were struggling against persecution and opposition and false teaching and all kinds of things uh, as local congregations. The second vision, we saw the persecution and the suffering and the martyrdom and the sealing of the church Uh, between the first and second coming of Christ. And then uh, the third vision, we saw the protection of the church in the midst of God's judgment against the world, against the created order, against the wicked on this earth because of the fall and because of sin. And so now starting in chapter 12, the, the focus shifts for us from the events that have been taking place on earth to now reveal the deeper spiritual realities which are taking place behind the scenes as we begin to consider more specifically the activity and the working of Satan in this world. And so as we've seen with all the previous cycles so far, this is the fourth cycle of vision. Each one has started with the first coming of Jesus, deals with the events transpiring throughout the church age, and then ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. We saw this last week in chapter 11, uh, verses, I think, 15 to 19, taking us to the final judgment of the wicked. And so again, with the fourth cycle, we now go back to the beginning. We go back to the first coming of Jesus, once again considering God's activity of salvation and judgment in this world during the period that we are living in, the period of the last days or the church age. Now, although the focus on, of this vision 
is, is on this period of the church age. We're going to see that this morning. John firstly sets the scene for us in the first place today by revealing to us the history of the world before Christ, the history of the world BC in verses one to six. And uh, we'll see that as we work our way through this. But we are introduced in verses one to six to three main characters in this new vision. And again, these characters are being described for us in, in very dramatic picture language, using this symbolic, uh, apocalyptic language uh, that we've become used to in Revelation. And so we see a pregnant woman, a terrifying red dragon, and a baby boy. And just like a moth is drawn towards the bright light of a, of a flame, so John's vision draws us in with this bright and glorious description of a woman. Uh, she is described in the most amazing language, and we are intrigued uh, as we consider this woman who is bright, who um, has stars for a, for a, around her head, she has her she um, has her head over the, sorry, she has her feet uh, on the moon, uh, and it's a, it's a great picture. And as we are drawn closer, we are told that this woman is about to give birth. She's pregnant. She's groaning uh, in birth pains, and because of her amazing description, we kind of intuitively know, intuitively know that the child that is going to be born to this woman is certainly going to be someone special. And yet as we get closer uh, in anticipation of the birth of this child, we see something quite grotesque and terrifying appear in the heavens. We see a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And as he kind of rides in the heavens, his tail sweeps a, a third of the stars from heaven and casts them to earth. And then this dragon lands on the earth right in front of the woman who is about to deliver her baby. And like a deranged monster, he waits in anticipation for the birth so that he can eat the baby alive. John then sees this woman giving birth to the baby. It's a male child, and now we begin to understand why this child is so special, because we are told in verse five that this child is the one. He is the one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, this baby boy is the king of kings, the ruler of rulers, and as the dragon opens his mouth to devour the child, we are told that the child is caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman escapes and flees into the wilderness to a place God has prepared for her where she will be fed and protected for 1,260 days. What an incredible vision. Uh, as all of them have been so far in this book. And again, we need to come and ask, so what is this vision? What do all the signs and the symbols mean? Well, let's start with the woman this morning, uh, for she is perhaps the, the most difficult to understand, and if we understand who she is, uh, then the rest is quite straightforward. Now, some groups, uh, especially the Roman Catholic Church, would want you to see that the woman is a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they would argue very literally that the woman is a literal woman and it must therefore be the earthly mother of Jesus. 
And yes, perhaps if you, if you read these verses uh, disconnected from, from the rest of the book of Revelation with no appreciation for this apocalyptic, symbolic genre, and the incredible uh, language and symbols that are used throughout the book, then you might quite logically conclude that this must be Mary. But even just taken in the context of Revelation 12, we see that, that this reference to the woman um, is something far greater than Mary. Look down to verse 17. We are told in verse 17 that the dragon became furious with the woman and goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Not referring to the literal biological children uh, that came from Mary and Joseph, but referring to, as verse 17 says, all those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. And so it's very clear from Revelation 12 itself that the offspring of the woman refers to all Christians, all those who hold firm in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. We also see in verse 6 that this woman is nourished and protected in the wilderness by God for a period of 1,260 days. And verse 14 refers to the same period as a time, times, and half a time, or as we saw last week, three and a half years. And you'll recall from last Sunday that this number is a symbolic number. It's a, it's a reference to the entire church age, the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so this woman is certainly not Mary, who lives forever through this entire church age, She's been dead already by the time John wrote the book. But this woman lives on for the entire church age. So who is she then? Well, drawing from the threads as we looked at last week, those Old Testament threads that are woven together into this tapestry of revelation, we see that God himself refers in the Old Testament to his people Israel as a woman, and more specifically as his bride or his wife. We see this in Isaiah 54. Uh, Jeremiah 3 talks about God's wife, Israel, being adulterous. Uh, we see this in Hosea chapter 2. And then the New Testament continues to take that description of the people of Israel as God's bride or wife, and then ascribes that to the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. And John's vision, we'll get to in chapter 19 and chapter 21, makes it very clear that all believers, both Old Testament and New Testament believers, are collectively seen in Scripture as the bride of the Lamb. And so as we consider again how these strands are, are woven together into the, the tapestry of this vision, we see that the true people of God are being referred to here being described in spiritual language as a radiant and a beautiful woman, having authority and royalty that could never be ascribed to any human being other than Jesus himself, but which is certainly a fitting description for the bride of Christ, namely his church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, uses similar language, speaking of the bride being presented in radiance, in splendor uh, before, before God. Now, very important about this woman, we are told, is that she was pregnant. 
and was groaning in the birth pains of labor, about to give birth to a male child. And so here we start to see for certain that this woman is a reference to the true Israel of God. And, and what I mean by that is not simply a reference to ethnic Israel, but a reference to the true believing remnant within Israel. You see, what John sees in this vision takes us all the way back to a promise that God made back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Won't you turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 15. This is a promise that God made to Satan. God made a promise to Satan back in Genesis. Let's read that together. Let's read from verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, to Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he the offspring, there will be a child, a male child. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see the three symbols in Genesis 3.15, again in John's vision. A woman, offspring, a male child, and the serpent is there. And so ever since that day, ever since that day in the Garden of Eden, the whole history of the world has been divided into two camps. Those who are the offspring of the serpent and those who are the offspring of the woman. And the whole Old Testament story is a story of groaning pregnancy. As the line of the promise, the promise of the woman's seed is traced all the way from Eve right down to the birth of Jesus. But as we read our Old Testaments, we see that the general nation of Israel was not too concerned about God. They were not too concerned about the promise of a Messiah. But within the nation, there was always this believing, faithful remnant traced from Eve um, through Noah, through Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, eventually through Judah all the way to David, and from David all the way down to Mary. And if you want to see the whole line traced from, uh, from Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus, you can look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23 to 38, uh, to see that. And so Paul picks up on this, this thread from Genesis to Jesus in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and he says to us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So there we have the woman. The woman is really the, the true believing church of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation, but particularly in the Old Testament context, that believing remnant that brought forth the promised seed uh, of both David and Abraham and Eve, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's move on to consider the dragon in verse three and four. And we really don't need to speculate uh, about the meaning of this symbol because verse nine tells us exactly who the dragon is. 
Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says that the great dragon is that ancient serpent that we've just read about in Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world. So we are meant here to go right back to Genesis and to call to mind the words of God to that ancient serpent in the garden and to recognize that, that Eve was not deceived by a talking snake. Eve was deceived by Satan himself, who is now revealed to us in this symbol of the great dragon. His description of having seven heads with seven crowns or diadems is a symbolic description of, of universal presence and authority. And he has ten horns, which speaks of great power and strength. And there's a, a strong thread being drawn here from Daniel's vision, Daniel chapter 7. And it's most likely indicating that the great power and authority that this dragon wields on the earth is manifest through human authorities and world rulers. We'll see more of this next time in, in chapter 13, so we're not going to spend too much time on that this morning. We also see in verse 4 that this dragon sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. Now, some people think that uh, that may be a reference to the, the angels that were followers of Satan who were um, thrown down to the earth later with him, um, but this seems to be something else. This seems to be something that, that he does, that he casts them down. And so again, this is another thread that is drawn from Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, that speaks about God's people as shining like bright stars in the sky. And so most likely refers to Satan's efforts, as we've seen in the previous visions, to persecute and, and trample and destroy the people of God. And this seems to fit well with the rest of uh, Revelation. But the key to understanding this section is the second half of verse 4. And going on to verse 5, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Here we see that the main focus of Satan ever since Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 has not primarily been the people of God generally, simply because Satan hated the Jews. No, his focus has always been on Jesus. You see, as long as there remained a faithful remnant of the Jews, a faithful remnant of the offspring of the woman, a remnant of the seed of the promise, then the day would come when the one who would be born to the woman would rise up and would crush the head of the serpent. Satan knew this from the very beginning. Ever since that day in the Garden of Eden, Satan in a sense, has been living with a, with a death threat over him, a, a death sentence over him. A sentence that was linked to the birth of a child, a male child, who would be born one day, who would defeat and destroy Satan forever. And so, in the fullness of time, as Paul says, the Son of God uh, is about to take upon himself the frailty of human nature being born as a baby in Bethlehem, Satan finally has his chance to bring that promise of Genesis 3.15 to nothing 
if he can devour the child at its birth. And so thirdly, in this section, we see the description of the child in verse five. There's no dispute as to his identity. The male child is he who will rule all the nations with an iron rod. This is a a clear description taken from Psalm chapter two, uh, a messianic psalm pointing us forward to Jesus. And then we are told that just as the, the great dragon was about to devour the child, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now bound up in that short verse uh, is really all of Jesus' life on earth uh, and all the multiple attempts which Satan tried to destroy Jesus. Uh, we can see this right at his birth as Satan's human agent, King Herod, was so determined to kill Jesus that he wiped out all baby boys two years and younger just to make sure he got Jesus But Jesus was protected by God as Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. Then we can think of all Satan's other attempts on Jesus' life through his other agents. We can think of the Pharisees and, and the unbelieving Jews, how many times they plotted to kill Jesus, how they planned to throw him off a cliff. But each time, Jesus was protected by God. We can think of Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness to get him to sin, to get him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, but Jesus was protected by the Spirit of God and by the power of his word. We can think of Satan's efforts to get Jesus right near the end to give up in the garden of Gethsemane or to throw in the towel during that pers- that, that, the persecution and the shame of his mock trial, or even on the cross, as his father turned his face away and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Satan was ready to devour Jesus at every moment of his life. But Jesus pressed on to complete the task which God had given him to save his people from their sins. But then Jesus died. And Satan thought that he had finally won. He thought that his plans to to outsmart the the God of Genesis 3.15 had succeeded as Jesus breathed his last and died. Remember, Satan is not um, omniscient. He doesn't know the future. When Satan saw Jesus die on the cross, he thought he had won. But on the third day, Jesus rose triumphant over death and 40 days later ascended into glory. As John says, he was caught up to God and to his throne. Can you imagine how Satan must have felt on that first Easter Sunday morning? As Jesus rose victorious over sin and death, victorious over Satan himself. Well, we don't have to wonder how he felt. We are told he was enraged. Verse 12 tells us that he is overcome with such rage that when he realized his fate had been forever sealed and the Son of God was no longer within his reach, We are told in verse 13 that in his fury, he went after the woman. 
And so we are told in verse 6 that the woman, the true people of God, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. We'll come back to this again uh, later on in the passage. So there we have, in a sense, the, the history of the world from Genesis to Jesus' ascension described for us in just six verses. But these verses give us the insight and the understanding that we need to realize that what transpires on the pages of world history is not all that it seems. Despite what Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin would like you to believe, the two main players on the scenes of world history are not America and Russia. Nor was it Israel and the Roman Empire back in John's day. No, the vision of John reveals to us that the two main players on the scenes of world history are Jesus and Satan and their respective offsprings, the church and the world. And so to help us understand this even more clearly, we see then this morning in the second place the spiritual realities behind all history. The story breaks away now in verses 7 to 12 from the scene that we've been considering on the earth with the woman and the child and the dragon. And we are now taken behind the scenes to see the spiritual battle which is raging in the heavenly places. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 to 6, is going to continue in a few minutes in verses 13 to 17. But verses 7 to 12 are kind of the, the cosmic spiritual dimension to what's taking place, a battle which rages in the heaven with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Let's read verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him." Now, while some commentators do argue for the fact that these verses 7 to 9 occurred before the fall uh, of Adam and, and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the consensus seems to agree much more strongly that this was the victory battle which was accomplished with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. We cannot be sure of the timeline of events here as things in the spiritual realm are not bound by our kind of chronological understanding of time on earth, but it does seem to fit the flow of the vision at least to see that while Jesus was on the cross or at least while he was dead in the grave, that Satan took this opportunity to mount his attack against his angelic counterpart, the archangel Michael. Remember up to this point, Satan knew that the seed of the woman would come and would crush his head, but now the seed of the woman was dead. So this was Satan's chance to mount his attack against God and his angelic army. Satan and his demons fighting against the angels of God, but verse 8 reveals that they were defeated. And Satan and his demons were thrown out of heaven or, or out of the heavenly realm and were cast down to the earth. Now, what brought about this defeat of Satan and his demons? Was it that Michael uh, and his angels were better fighters 
Maybe they had better moves or, or better equipment. No, remember this is a spiritual vision. John tells us in verse 10 what secured the defeat of Satan and his demons. It was Jesus. As Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the victory over Satan was accomplished forever. Let's read verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Do I need to remind you of the, the, the title of our series? The lamb wins. Do you see that it was the blood of the lamb which secured the victory over Satan? The very death of Jesus which Satan thought achieved his victory actually secured his defeat. And so as Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of God and to his throne, Satan was forever defeated, thrown down to earth to await his final judgment when Jesus returns. Now there is so much more that I would like us to explore in terms of what the ascension of Jesus and the defeat of Satan actually means practically for, for you and, and me as Christians here on earth, and we don't have time to do that today. But in God's providence, and this is absolutely God's timing, this Thursday is Ascension Day. And so we're gonna be gathering together again on Thursday evening here at half past seven to remember this very moment in history that these verses describe. So please do come back on Thursday night as Kyle is going to unpack Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 12, as we think about all that the ascension of Jesus means for us as God's people while we battle Satan here on earth and wait for Christ's return. And so in the final place in this morning, I want us to see the history of the world after Christ, A.D., in verses 13 to 17, the, the storyline uh, of the vision brought us in verse 6 to, to the dragon who is about to devour the child. But then we are told that the, the child was caught up to heaven. And then we were shown in verses 7 to 12 something of the battle that's raging in the, in the heavenly realm. And now in verse 13, we're back in the story. Back in verse 13, uh, let's read on from there. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. These verses are, are just an expansion then of, of verse six, connecting the flow of the two halves of the vision on the scene of world history. But notice verse six speaks about 1,260 days, and verse 14 speaks about the same period as three and a half years. And so we are, are dealing here with the same period described previously last week in chapter 11 as the time on earth between the first and the second coming of Jesus, the time of the trampling of the nations. 
You see, the woman was given wings to, to fly into the wilderness, and we're going to see in the weeks to come that the church exists in a sense, as God's protected, nourished people in the wilderness, the spiritual wilderness of the world. We are protected, we are nourished for this entire time. And what we have here again is a, is a description then of the persecution and the trampling of the nations during this period that we looked at last week, where the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the, the two lampstands, the two prophets proclaim the truth of Jesus to the world. Now listen to how Paul describes this period of 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure is he speaking about? He's speaking about the, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see the spiritual battle that is raging, but the church of Jesus Christ is nourished and protected by the life of Jesus Christ, by the victory that he has won uh, over Satan. So Paul describes from a human perspective what John is now explaining from a spiritual perspective. The fact that the church of Jesus is constantly under the attack of Satan. Look at verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. This really is a symbolic picture of the constant pursuit and attack of Satan against Christians, coming at us like, like a flooding river, Satan trying to do whatever he can to destroy the church, to, to overwhelm us, to drown us, to sweep us away. But God intervenes. He's reigning, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the mighty angel standing with one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. He's sovereignly reigning over all things for the sake of his church. And so he always comes to the rescue and the protection and the nourishment of his people. And then please look carefully at verse 17. Uh, for here we see something that may appear confusing, but I hope to show you that it's not. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, up to now, I've been saying that the woman represents the people of God. Firstly, the, the true believing remnant of Israel in the Old Testament, and then the true church of God in the New Testament. That is the woman. But now we see that when Satan cannot destroy the woman, the church, which makes sense because Jesus said, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when Satan sees that he cannot destroy the church, he goes after the rest of her offspring, which is clearly a description again of Christians. So how can Christians here be both the woman and the offspring? Have I got myself into a jam? Well, one way to understand this is to see that John himself, the same author, in his second letter, in 2 John chapter 1, he writes to a local church, and he addresses his letter to the elect lady and her offspring, which is simply a reference to the church corporately, the elect lady, and to her offspring, the individual members who make up that church. And so that could simply be consistent with John uh, using the same terminology for the woman and her offspring in Revelation 12 uh, to refer to the church collectively and its members. But I think there's more to it going on here because I think what John's revealing here is Satan's strategy on earth. And that is to see that he has a two-pronged approach in terms of his fury and his rage against Jesus. Satan wants to eradicate any reference to Jesus on earth. That's all he can do. That's all he's got left. He's been defeated. His final crushing is guaranteed. And so we are told in verse 12, his time is short, and he knows that. And so in his fury and in his hatred of God and of Jesus, he tries firstly to destroy the church, the woman, the people of God as, as we are identified corporately and locally in various places across the world. And so there is a, a very sobering reality revealed in these verses that Satan's mission on earth is to destroy the woman. He wants to destroy the name of Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus Christ is most clearly seen through the life and the witness of the local church. And so what are Satan's tactics to destroy the woman? Well, it includes false teaching. It includes the prosperity gospel, secularism of the church, idolatry in terms of worship music, moral failures of church leaders, compromise on sexuality and, and gender, division and strife within church. The, the list goes on. We are firmly in his sights. And in each of these attacks, Satan's goal is to destroy the name of Christ and to silence the church. But there's another reality being taught in verse 17, that Satan does not only attack the church corporately, but as the gospel continues to prevail, as you leave here today and you go out into your workplaces and, and into your schools and universities and into the community, and you take the name of Jesus Christ with you, his focus shifts towards the individual believers. Satan is like an enraged madman, and if he cannot destroy the church, and he hasn't given up on the church, he keeps trying, but he pursues the offspring of the woman. And look at what verse 17 hints that he's after. He's after personal disobedience and unbelief. The Christians that Satan pursues in verse 17, we are told, are those who keep the commandments of God and who hold on to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, those who are faithful to Jesus and who bear witness to his name. Again, keep in mind what Satan is after. He is actually after Jesus. 
He's after Jesus, and because he's after Jesus, he's after anyone who represents Jesus. Young people, Satan doesn't really care much about you getting drunk on weekends. He doesn't care much about getting you to fall in love with an unbeliever. He doesn't care much about you becoming addicted to pornography. What he cares about is using those things to get you to deny Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, Satan hates you. And he will do anything in his fury to get you to disobey and to deny Jesus. Listen to how Joel Beakey helpfully explains the tactics of Satan's, and this is for all of us. Verse 17, uh, in verse 17, Beakey says, notice that Satan is given several titles in this chapter. He is the devil, the slanderer, and the accuser. As the accuser, the devil can influence our memory of past sins, dirty jokes we heard years before we were converted still stick in our minds today. Sinful relationships we entered into before we were converted still haunt us today. Filthy images we saw years ago still pollute our minds today, and yet we cannot remember last week's sermon. That is because the devil likes to dredge up our past and blackmail us with, our record, with the record of our sin. He is constantly accusing us. Satan is also our adversary. That literally means enemy. Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom to devour. Sometimes he comes on tiptoe. Sometimes he appears as an angel of light. The devil plays so many games. For example, when you sit down to listen to the evening news, you can easily absorb what it says. But if you turn from the news and you pick up your Bible, suddenly your concentration is gone. Likewise, you can surf the internet for hours. But when you try to pray, you suddenly begin to get sleepy. That is how Satan works. Joseph Hall says Satan lulls us to sleep as he doth always rock the cradle when we sleep at our devotions. We must be wary of Satan's devices. He tiptoes into our private devotions and begins to rock us in the cradle, and before we know it, we are fast asleep. We need to recognize that Satan is our adversary. He has countless ways of getting at us. And then too, Satan is referred to as the tempter, the old serpent who wound his way into the Garden of Eden. He also winds his way into our lives. Think of King David. When he was just a shepherd boy, he took on a bear and a lion to protect the sheep. When he was a little older, he took on a blasphemous giant named Goliath. As a young adult, he escaped the, the deadly conspiracies of King Saul. With an army of misfits, he established a kingdom. Yet a woman bathing on the roof next door brought him down. This sort of fall should, uh, sorry, this sort of fall is also the work of the tempter, for he knows our weak points. He knows where to slither in to push us into sin. We must be on our guard against Satan by watching and praying. We must be equipped to face the fury of an enraged enemy and by grace overcome him, end quote. 
So as we close today, can I just take you back to verse 10 and 11, and we're going to explore this in more detail on Thursday. I heard a voice in heaven saying, a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before God. And they have conquered him, speaking of the brothers, they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Did you see that? The, the ferocious enemy of our soul is real, but he's defeated. The great accuser of our souls has been cast down. The voice from heaven declares a most amazing truth. We have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Satan is real. Satan is furious. He's out to get you. He's out to get me because his time is short and we belong to Jesus. But Jesus has conquered him. And so do we conquer him by the blood of the lamb if we are in Christ today. You and I stand no chance against Satan on, his, on our own, but our captain is Jesus. And he has summoned us to, to follow him in this holy war. He's already secured the victory for us. So may God help us then as we go out boldly in obedience to stand firm in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is no small matter. Satan is after your obedience and your allegiance to Christ. But if we remain close to Christ, our captain, we have conquered him. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again this morning for your word, a portion of, of your word that has given us an insight into the, the spiritual dimension of the world that we live in, to realize the battle that is raging. And Lord, I think sometimes because we are so well taught in the gospel, we are so well taught that Jesus conquered Satan on that day when he rose again. That is true, and, and we delight and rejoice in that fact, but sometimes it makes us complacent. It makes us complacent with sin. It makes us complacent to, to play games with the devil, thinking that he's unable to harm us. And that is true if we are in Christ. It is, it is true if we remain faithful and obedient to Christ. So help us, Lord, we pray, as we go out from here today, to be aware of his schemes, to be aware of all that he is doing in our own hearts and in the world around us, to cause us to deny the name of Jesus Christ, maybe not verbally, but in our hearts and in our actions, to no longer live for Christ and to no longer be that, that lampstand for Jesus in this world. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, where we have taken our great salvation for granted and this battle and this fight against sin which is raging. Thank you that in you we have the victory now and eternally. Help us to remain close to you, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.